Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 35th episode of the Not A Cast entitled Tears in the Rain. Dude, did you? I mean, I was watching Blade Runner 2049 just like a week ago, and you selected this title. It's great. It's so good. An analysis of a Game I, of Thrones. Go ahead. I know what I'm doing, Jeff. I know what I'm doing. You just like, you read my mind, baby. You just read my mind. <laughs> so this is our analysis of a Game of Thrones Edit 9, in which Ned's melancholy musings on Robert and Lyanna while riding back from visiting a brothel are rudely interrupted by an attack by Jamie Lannister, which leaves Ned wounded and several of his men killed. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zach. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all podcasts, we'll be talking about all published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Yes, indeed. And our question this week comes from Sir Snark Knight, who asks... Is there any monthly episode topic slash play slash character that you would like to do an episode on that your co-host does not want to do? Well, first of all, sir, appropriately named as Snark Knight, may I congratulate you on a question designed to drive us apart, to put a wedge between the Not A Cast boys, but you shall not succeed, sir. Nope. Now you're probably going to succeed. You will, yeah. Anyway, anyway, Jeff, what, what do you want to do an episode on that I would uh, shrink from uh, the thought of? I feel like there's not actually that many topics that we would be like, oh, I don't want to do that. I mean, when we're, when we're talking about some of our Patreon episodes, I think we've we've kind of batted around some ideas and we've been like, eh, do we have enough material for that? We're not sure. I think we were like, I was a little bit cautious about whether we would have enough material for the Robert Baratheon episode, for instance. I wasn't sure that there was much ground to cover that other folks hadn't covered previously, but... I surprised myself and was surprised by your uh, by your work in in writing that episode. So I felt like that my my fears were unfounded. So I think the one thing that I had uh, we were talking about on Twitter about is that uh, Emmett, as you guys might know, is a Zack Snyder hater spelled H eight R, while I am a Zack Snyder lover spelled L U V apostrophe R. Um, actually, I'm not I'm not a Zack Snyder lover. I, I do enjoy some of his some of his work, not all his work. Oh. He gets a nice pragmatic principle point of view, and I'm just a hater with an eight in the middle. You That's are. nice. Well, hey, I, I think the dude is tremendously talented. I just wish someone else was in charge of literally every creative decision involved. That's all. Put him, give him a nice camera and let him make things swoosh and explode. He's the best, the best in the business at making things swoosh and explode. Number one. That's not nothing. It's just literally everything else I have a problem with. I can't wait until he adapts A Song of Ice and Fire in 2028 into the next some version of, of Game of Thrones. Some of it would be great. The battle <laughs> scenes would be amazing. I would pay a lot of money to see that. Everything else would make me want to kill myself. So yeah. that's a that's a preview of what that episode would be like, folks. We're honestly considering doing that. We think it would be fun. Yeah, I think, you know, Watchmen is one of those movies that really is fascinating to me because... I feel like it divides people, a lot of a lot of people who love movies. They either really, really love Watchmen or they really, really hate it. And I don't feel like you're that way because, I mean, as we've talked about in pre-production, you're you're much more of a new – you have a much more nuanced take on <laughs> Zack Snyder's Watchmen than, than, Was there a, a, than the haters. Was there just a note of sarcasm in your voice, sir? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm extremely attached to the source text of Watchmen. It's in terms of – my favorite stories. It's probably honestly only second to a song of ice and fire. It's a great story. Um, 
it's it's just the construction of it and the sadness of it and the amount of American pop culture and history it kind of casually tears through is just kind <laughs> of breathtaking. And part of me is, you know, that it's part of its strength is it's so unique to its medium and any attempt to film it coherently is kind of admirable in and of itself. And I think Snyder's Watchmen does a lot of things right. Uh, there are a lot. Of, there's some decisions that make me tilt my head, but I think it's got that enough of the source material in there that it doesn't completely fall apart for yeah. me the way, say, Sucker Punch or Man of Steel do. So if, if we were going to talk intelligently and respectfully about one of the the works from old Zack Attack, that that <laughs> would probably be the one. And since it's another adaptation is around the corner, it's it's it would be relevant. So that's certainly a possibility. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for analysis of why Ozymandias was absolutely 100 percent correct to do what he did. In, no, I'm, I'm kidding, sort of. Um, but, uh, he is he is one of my all time favorite fictional characters, so that would be, and I do like a lot of what he does in the movie. So yeah. um, that would be a fun part of that conversation. So stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned in the next couple of months. I mean, we have obviously for the next patron only episode, we have our part two of Stump the Chumps, which we just finished editing. It's about two and a half hours long. I think you guys are really going to like it. Going about. The story side of the of the Song of Ice and Fire, as well as some of the future events and our predictions for some. I think you guys are going to really enjoy that one. And then, of course, in November, we have our Fire and Blood Volume 1 full-out analysis coming your way at the end of November, right around um, uh, right around Thanksgiving time frame. I don't remember the date off the top of my head. Uh, but we're also, you know, Emmett and I, as we talked about last week, we are going to be at the George R. R. Martin event in Jersey City, where he's going to be interviewed by John Hodgman. Um, I've been preparing questions. Well, one question. I think we're only allowed one question, potentially. It depends how long they can, you know, keep Jeff away from the microphone, frankly. If you get his hands on for a few minutes, we might see how many questions he can get out. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure one is the suggested limit, but you know. Yeah, exactly. This is um, this is America land of the free last time we checked. That's so. right. The, the flag still flies and still stands for freedom and they, and they can't take that away. Okay. True. True. <laughs> But, uh, but so yes. that'll be fun. Yeah, that'll be fun. So we do have a couple of Patreon episodes to to cover. And then in December, well, we were not going to announce what we're going to do yet, but I think you guys are really going to like it. Yes, yeah, for my end, I mean, you said it well earlier that there's not a lot we would want to avoid talking about. I'm trying to think of what's a, what's a subject that I would talk about that you wouldn't. Drugs, drug use. There's the one. I, we, I would do a whole episode with LML on psychedelia <laughs> and a song of ice and fire. And we would just like, you know, describe your pained expressions every 15 minutes or so. Well, I that's, think that's yeah. something Jeff probably wouldn't want to get through. What I were mean, you going to say, sir, before I embarrassed you? No, no. I think we actually it, it, came to, it came to my mind when we were talking about like maybe two months ago. You had said we oh maybe we could do a year on episode, although I feel like that would be more heavy on, on your side. And it was like, yeah, I think. That would be true, but I mean, as we're getting closer, well, not that much closer. We're a few years off still from feast and from uh, from dance. I think I think it would, I, I would enjoy doing a Euron episode down the road, but I do think like right now you are the master of all things Euron in the fandom as we speak. Ah, oh, shucks, I try. I do love I do love my evil sorceress pirate son. He is the best. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have, we're gonna have a lot of fun with him when we eventually years down the line do get to his stuff uh, on here because. Yeah, his King's Mood scenes, every single line is, is just absolutely perfect. So yes. you're going to have to put up with a lot of year on talk from me in the future. But yeah, um, that would, that would be one we, we'd carve out room for. Euron does military things. <laughs> he does, he does stuff that I can't talk about beyond. He sure does have a lot of boats in this scene. So that would, <laughs> that would be where you have to jump in and talk about what the boats are doing and why there's so many of them. I feel like, wait, 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 Emma, we forgot the boats. You forgot the boats. And, then and I'm like, oh, right, they have boats. Well, I mean, that's kind of what I love about Euron's character is that the Iron Board are just kind of incidental to him. Right. They're just like cannon fodder and he can't believe how stupid they are. Yep. So he's just says, 
he has to remind himself, oh, right, pirate. That's what I'm supposed to be doing here. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yar, matey. Am I doing it? <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. So yeah, that'll no, be fun. I, I do think a year on episode will be in the cards someday down the road. I, I think uh, as I'm uh, as I'll get around to rereading A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, probably before you even get to uh, those books in the Nauta cast, I'm sure I'll, 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 I'll warm myself up to doing a year on episode, potentially. Definitely a Victorian episode because I love Victorian to freaking tears. Honestly, that might be a better idea because I've I've already talked Yaron stuff to death, but there's so much to talk about with that useless tool of a man, <laughs> Victorian Greyjoy. I love him so much. He's so dumb. Dumb as a stump, uh, according to George and us. And exactly. Everyone. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. He's a character George had fun with, so that's an episode to think about for sure. Absolutely. So thank you, Sir Snark Knight, for the question. Again, if you guys are interested in asking us questions, that is available for all of our $10 and above patrons over at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Yes, indeed. Thank you to everyone who's uh, supported it so far. And um, if we uh, get up to a three th- our goal of 3000 per month, we're going to have to do a, a, an actual live cast for you people. You have to look at our dumb faces on YouTube and see our snarky reactions to things in real time. And won't that just be the worst event in the history of the world? I hope we get there. <laughs> that is going to be good. You can see how much editing we actually do for these episodes We're on the <laughs> audio side instead of all the fuck ups that we do normally. So, uh, or I do most, mostly. It's actually 95% me. Oh, hush you. Anywho. Uh, anyhow. So thank you again for the question, Sir Snark Knight. And we're on now to Game of Thrones, Eddard 9. And this chapter is freaking awesome. And here's its synopsis. Ned Stark finds Littlefinger chatting with Shataya in the brothel common hall while Heward, one of his men, plays strip forfeit with a, with a sex worker. Meanwhile, Jory Cassell's all looking at the scene with a smile at the view. But Ned's business is done here. His men jump to accompany their lord out of the brothel, but Littlefinger wonders something. Your business or Robert's? They say the hand dreams, the king's dreams, speaks with the king's voice, and rules with the king's sword. Does that also mean you fuck with the king's... Yeah, Ned cuts him off immediately. He's not ungrateful for Littlefinger's help, but don't be a dick, Littlefinger. You're being awful here. Outside, a warm rain pours down from a black sky. Jory asks if they're headed back to the Red Keep, and Ned nods. Everyone mounts up, and Littlefinger mounts a horse next to Ned. He talks about wanting to buy Shataya's, Shataya's brothel, talking about how sex work is profitable, unlike ships which sink. And Ned just kind of lets him talk, not saying anything. And finally, Littlefinger catches the hint and shuts the fuck up. Finally. <laughs> Riding silently through the dark rain drives Ned into some memory, though. He thinks back to Lyanna and how she knew that Robert would never stay faithful. Lyanna knew about Maya Stone back in the Vale. And though Ned had tried to reassure her that Robert truly loved her, his sister had known better. Love is sweet, dearest Ned, but it cannot change a man's nature. All right. Everyone, but especially Emmett, is appropriately sad and melancholy now. More sad is Ned's, mem- is Ned's memory of the girl that he interviewed back at the brothel. She'd been young. She named her daughter Barra, stating that the girl looked like Robert. She asked that Ned tell Robert how beautiful their daughter is, and this drives Ned into a deeper melancholy. You see, Robert was a man of love for an hour, but by, but by the end of that hour, by sunset, he would forget his vows, and that's something that Ned never did. Promise me, Ned. Lyanna's dying words, and Ned had kept his vows despite the price he paid. The girl claims that she's been with no one since Robert, and that she doesn't want any material possession, just Robert for some god god unknown reason. He was good to her, according to her, and Ned promises to tell Robert and says that Barrows will not go wanting. The girl had smiled then, and that smile had broken Ned's heart. Oof. 
man, this chapter. Ugh. And for some, it's making me feel feelings. And for some very odd reason, Ned had thought of Jon Snow then. Hmm. Emmett, why would Ned think of Jon Snow thinking about bastards being born to kings and stuff like that? I don't know. It's just it's just out there. It's a complete mystery, Jeff. I don't know what you're implying. And frankly, I don't like your tone. I don't like my tone either. <laughs> I'm going to ban myself now. <laughs> Go on, brother. All right. Flashing back to the present, Ned asks Littlefinger how many bastards Robert has. More than you for a start. Fucking obnoxious. Ned asks again how many, and Littlefinger counts the ones he knows of. Uh, one he doesn't name, but it's actually Edric, Edric Storm, who was conceived during Stannis' wedding night to Selyse on Stannis' bed. God damn, Robert. More on that on Patreon Robert episode if you guys want to check that out. And then Littlefinger also knows about a pair of twins at Casterly Rock that Cersei had murdered and the mother was sold into slavery. Jesus Christ. Ned didn't like the sound of that, but he couldn't discount it either. That the Robert he knew wouldn't be down for letting Cersei sell for letting Cersei murder the kids and sell the mother to slavery. But then again, Bob wasn't that dude these days. Ned asked Littlefinger why John Aaron took an interest in all these bastard children. Well, he was probably just doing Robert's bidding to look after them. No. Not that. There's more here. And then Littlefinger, of course, gets all dickish and jokes that John Aaron had to be killed for knowing that the king fathered baseborn bastards, an unheard of crime among royalty in Westeros. This sends Ned into further memory, and he thinks of someone who he rarely thinks of, Rhaegar Targaryen. He wonders if Rhaegar went to brothels, but he thinks not. Odd. So odd about that. But all of this memory and melancholy is suddenly interrupted when Jory Cassell yells out a warning, and suddenly there are soldiers in the streets. It's Lannister men, and they've surrounded Ned and his small party. Jory draws his sword and orders the streets to be cleared, but no, that's not happening. Jamie Lannister, decked all up in the Lion of Lannister regalia, is not letting them pass despite Littlefinger's quote-unquote protests. We'll get to that. He's here to ask after Tyrion. Any chance you know what happened to him, Ned? Yeah. Ned replies, he was taken prisoner at my command. Well, that was maybe a little bit hasty there, Ned. Um, because then, of course, Jamie immediately draws his sword and tells Littlefinger to get fucking lost. Jamie gets at least a tenth of a gold star for at least getting rid of Littlefinger. He demands that Ned draw his own sword, and he'd rather not kill the shit out of an unarmed Ned like he did to Ares the Second Targaryen. Littlefinger scurries off like the moral coward he is, saying he'll bring the city guard back. But now it's 20 Lasters versus Ned and his three men. Not good odds. But Ned has a play here. Kill me, and Catelyn will most certainly slay Tyrion. Well, that gets Jamie's attention. He's kind of skeptical that this would actually happen, but he doesn't want to take the chance regardless, especially on a woman's honor. Kind of, Jamie's a fucking dick here. Jamie sheathes his sword and wheels around, saying he knows Ned will go back to Robert, and he'll probably tell Robert how Jamie had put the fear of God into him. But he wonders if Robert will care. He orders that no harm comes to Ned, but you know. We really should teach that Ned Stark a lesson. Kill his men. Ned screams no. He draws his sword and runs his horse after Jaime, but the Golden Knight is far away. Jory puts his heels into his mountain charges. Ned's man Will is yanked down from his horse and stabbed to death. A spear takes Hewitt in the stomach and then Jory reappears, his sword a red slash against the sky. Ned screams at Jory to get the fuck out of here, but then more disaster. Ned's horse trips and falls on top of Ned and his leg. Ned watches as Lannister men cut, his, cut the legs out from Jory's sword and then sword his beloved guardsman to death. Ned tries to get to his feet, but he can't. His leg bone protrudes from his calf. He passes out due to the pain with the rain coming down all around him. When Ned wakes, he's alone. He drags his ass up to Jory Cassell, and that's where Littlefinger and the Gold Cloaks found Ned. <sighs> this always just kind of crushes me. 
cradling Joy's body. Good Lord, George. A litter is produced and Ned is loaded into it. He loses consciousness a few times on the way to the Red Keep, but he finally sees the castle ahead. They pass into the Red Keep, whose walls are, of course, looking like blood to Ned Stark at this point, and then Grand Maester Pycelle is standing over Ned. He offers Ned the milk of the poppy, and Ned overhears the Grand Maester telling someone to heat some wine for the wound. And that was the last that Ned Stark knew. And that is the summary for the melancholic, action-packed chapter called A Game of Thrones, Eddard 9. Another home run by George. Emmett, your melancholy thoughts. Well, I just want to say first, and not some melancholy thought, that I really hadn't paid attention to the length of chapters before this reread. Yeah. Uh, chapters relative to each other, but man, uh, it's, it's stunning coming off Catalan 6, which as we noted last week is such a long chapter mm-hmm. that Eddard 9 is, is relatively brief, I think maybe half as long, if that, a uh, much, much shorter chapter. And you can really appreciate the difference in the length just by looking at Jeff's synopsis. He did a terrific job uh, getting through all the various stages of Catalan 6 in his synopsis last week, um, but an equally great job at a relatively short synopsis for this chapter, Eddard 9, which despite being a much shorter chapter, is not in any way um, depthful, less involved, less busy even than Catalan 6. It manages yeah. to really be two kinds of chapters at once. Eddard 9 is basically a daydream interrupted by a nightmare. It's a, it's a bit awkward in that its first half, Ned leaving the brothel, getting lost in his thoughts, doesn't really have anything to do with its second half, Jamie attacking in the streets. But uh, Martin really does sell the sudden shift in tone from the haunted past to the bloody present, and both halves are really terrific and really significant, so it's hard to complain much. Ned's musings are extremely emotional and cleverly structured, and the fight is just gorgeously written in its imagery and the sickening turn into violence. It makes you feel the gut punch Ned is experiencing. It effectively ratchets up the Stark versus Lannister stakes a step further from Catelyn snatching Tyrion. And I mean, Ned, Ned does get a lot of chapters practically in a row in this part of the book, but it, you know, it's a good thing they're all great. Terrific point. I mean, this, this chapter is extraordinarily short comparatively to Catelyn 6 and of course to Eddard 8. Uh, actually, just to Catelyn 6 and then to Daenerys 4, which is coming up next week. And, you know, one of the reasons we said so uh, two weeks ago was that we thought that perhaps this chapter was initially at one point combined with Eddard 8. But here, I think that George did a good job in splitting these chapters up because they do hit different thematic notes. I think that this chapter is a very sad chapter. This is one of those chapters that people often cite as being one of those examples where it's like, man, this world kind of fucking sucks. And it does. I mean, for people like Jory Cassell, for the reader too, for that matter, because we grow attached to Jory Cassell, but I'll talk about that a little bit later too. But yeah, this chapter is short, but it accomplishes its mission, which is to show us first some backstory about Lyanna, show us a little bit about Rhaegar that we might not been have been hearing previously. And interestingly enough, from Eddard Stark, of all people, talking about Rhaegar as maybe not the total piece of shit that Robert is saying that he is. That's really interesting and curious, right? And then we also get, you know, the first real inkling beyond Jamie pushing Bran from the window at the Tower of Winterfell of the coming Lannister-Stark conflict, which is going to be coming into significant focus at the end of A Game of Thrones and on into Clash and Storm and really beyond that for that matter as well. So yeah, I, I really like this chapter. I think it's a fabulous short chapter that kind of grips you emotionally and also speaks to the greater themes that are coming up in the story and about some of the plot points that will be coming up between the Starks and the Lannisters. But take us through that depth that we so that we want. Well, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, emotionally, as you were saying, it's really rooted in melancholy and loss. That is what links the flashback to Lyanna with the loss of Jory Cassell. Is this that, that common theme of, of grief and guilt and kind of the whole people leave behind in your life. And like you say, it, it connects to larger themes in the sense of feeling like this is this is 
kind of a crap sack world. This is not just about individuals losing things and losing each other. Just the, the basic structures and incentives of this society are kind of screwed up. And you can, I think, see that in the quick opening scene, which Martin doesn't linger on much. As we said, it might be an artifact of being part of a larger chapter, which is the scene in the, in the brothel, yep. Shatai's brothel. Uh, and I think, I do like though that Martin does start with a quick little contrast here between the clients at Chitayas, as uh, represented by Ned's men, a quote, by the hearth, Heward and a buxom wench were playing <laughs> in forfeits. From the look of it, he'd lost his belt, his cloak, his mail shirt, and his right boot so far. <laughs> Not very good at this, he is. <laughs> no. While the girl had been forced to unbutton her shift to the waist, Jory Cassell stood behind, beside a rain-streaked window with a wry smile on his face, watching Heward turn over tiles and enjoying the view. Okay, so Heward plays. Jory's a little higher up in the totem pole, so he's not taking part. <laughs> he's got a little little more kind of dignity, but he's there in, in the room, smiling, interacting in a way that Ned is not. So I think you can see kind of uh, the levels of the hierarchy at work here. Or a detail a little later, Jory brought out his horse. Jory's doing the responsible thing, mm-hmm. the captain of the guard thing. Meanwhile... Young, wa- young Will came right behind him, leading Littlefinger's mare with one hand while the other fumbled with his belt and the <laughs> lacings of his trousers. A barefoot whore leaned into the stable door, giggling at him. Okay, so it's, it's clearly set up. Ned's men represent the clients. They're the customer base for yep. a place like Shatai's. It's not even questioned that they're going to visit the prostitutes while Ned is conducting his business. Ned doesn't question it. Jory doesn't question it. Littlefinger doesn't question it. It's kind of a given. Contrast that with the investor class as represented by Littlefinger. Uh, from the very beginning of the chapter. He found Littlefinger in the brothel's common room, chatting amiably with a tall, elegant woman who wore a feathered gown over skin as black as ink. So Ned's men are talking to uh, to the sex workers. They're talking to labor. Littlefinger is talking to management. Because <laughs> Littlefinger is part of the class that actually runs this place. As he says later, Shatayu runs a choice establishment. I've half a mind to buy it. Brothels are a much sounder investment than ships, I've found. Whores seldom sink, and when they are boarded by pirates, why, the pirates pay good coin like everyone else. Which, yeah, as a sidebar, agreed with you earlier. Little, all of Littlefinger's jokes feel like he was practicing them the night before right. in front of his mirror telling himself how <laughs> awesome he is, and they're just not funny. No. Um, but yeah, so that's the, I think that's the contrast that uh, Martin is going for here a little, that Heward is, is, not only paying his money, presumably, he's taking off his clothes, he's gambling them. There's, I think, an image of him losing his stuff here that is kind of emblematic of them being taken for a ride. I think Martin describes Jory's smile as as wry, as if he like is kind of thinking <laughs> to himself, ah, Heward, you're kind of an idiot. And uh, Littlefinger's the one who profits here. You know, Heward is gambling his clothes while is losing, Will is losing his discipline. Uh, Littlefinger's the one actually behind the scenes because he recognizes this as a recession-proof industry where pirates play by the same rules as everyone else. We called it the world's oldest profession for a reason. It's Littlefinger's realizing how much he can buy into this. And that's not Ned's world, but it is Robert's. And I think that that division between the the world of the clients and the world of the investors kind of gets at the gap Ned is trying to, to cross here as well. That's a great point, man. I, I had never seen that in this chapter, but it really, but it really, really speaks to how George kind of frames the action before we even jump into it. Now, one of the things I wonder is what the instructions were that Ned gave to his men before him. I think... It had to, or maybe not even that, maybe it was Littlefinger who was like, just act normal. Like, you know, Heward, you're going to play tiles with this, with the, with this sex worker. Jor, you're going to be standing outside guard because that's what you're doing as the captain of the guards. And while Ned is up with a prostitute up on the, uh, upstairs. So it looks natural, right? In case that Ned is being followed by, by Lannister men or by Lannister agents. Or by Littlefingers, we're going to talk about here in, <laughs> towards the end. But, you know, I, I do think that, your distinction that you're making is fantastic and is great and it does speak to, again, that class structure that Westeros has and even that class structure that's within 
you know, Ned Stark's house, household guard, which is kind of a step above your common men, so to speak. You know, these guys are have steady work. They have um, they've been supported by Ned Stark, and they've been with him for as long as as a lot for for a really long time. Folks like Joy have been with Ned as long as Robert's Rebellion because he was there when Ned and Catelyn got married. And well, we also see that class structure though working out too. And I think that also maybe Ned, perhaps Littlefinger tried to make it look as normal as possible. Like the Lord visiting the brothel. Well, of course he'd have his good man sitting outside, one of his other men being inside with the with 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 a sex worker and the other guy with the horses sort of thing. Now that's an excellent point. They're not just playing these roles, they're performing these roles. Yeah. They're they're trying to live up to the standard of everyone who might be watching and that's something, of course, that Varus will talk about with his famous riddle, that power and the performance of power are kind of inextricable. They're kind of just the same thing. Like, you can't really – there's your role. It does not really exist outside your performance of the role. And I think that's something that Ned kind of struggles with. But Littlefinger – I think Littlefinger mo- mostly has a grasp on this. We've said before, I think he kind of kind of coasts and is lazy in some respects, but yeah. he understands it more than Ned anyway. And yeah, I also agree about – uh, Ned's men, they're perfect clients because as Littlefinger says, Shatai is a choice establishment. Right. It's not just anyone with a clipped copper, as Bronn says, <laughs> uh, can go there. Ned's men are, you know, uh, as far as lower class men in Westeros are, re- are doing reasonably well. So it kind of makes sense that they would fit in as clients there. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. That's, that's a very good point. Then of course we shift into the heart of the chapter. I think what everyone really remembers it for and that there's, Caveat up front, there's nothing I'm going to say about this flashback scene that hadn't been covered already excellently by Girls Gone Canon in their episode on both Eddard 9 and Eddard 10. Mm-hmm. Um, just just really incredible work. So you should listen to those if you have not already. Absolutely. Having said that, it is I really do love this this section, the, the mystic watercolored memories of the <laughs> way we were, to borrow from a standard. There you go. Uh, I love how the, the rain kind of cues a nested flashback. It feels, it's it's very organic. It feels kind of very cinematic. I'm thinking of like the... And Lost, when they would have a flashback scene, there would be like a swell of noise. And it just, mm-hmm. the, the way just the rain is dripping down and then suddenly we're in Ned's thoughts is just, it's very, uh, very elegantly done. Um, and Martin plays with structure in an interesting and moving fashion here. And again, I'm not far from the first to point this out, but he starts with the distant memories of Lyanna rather than the extremely recent memories of the brothel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ned goes all the way back to his uh, youth at Winterfell, talking to Lyanna about the betrothal to Robert first. And then shifts into the brothel with really, and I love this, really no warning or distinction. Yeah. He just jumps from the end of Lyanna's line about it cannot change a man's nature right to describing Barra's mother. Uh, so it's definitely Martin kind of stranding you in Ned's head. But it, it is an interesting structure and maybe may counterintuitive, but it has, I think, several important effects that we're going to talk about. Fantastic point about how Martin structures this chapter. You know, to me, it almost feels like a tide because, again, like you talked about how it takes us back to that Lyanna memory, that distant memory. Then we flash back to the, to the present, something with Barra. Then we flash back as they're, as they're driving, as they're driving, as they're riding back to the Red Keep to Littlefinger talking about things uh, about the brothel itself. And this allows Ned to flash back to Rhaegar and to Jon Snow and the promises that, that he made. And it also again flashes back to Barra. So it feels like a tide kind of going back and forth between present, past, distant past, present again. More recent past, present, and then kind of in between, kind of far out, but not as far out uh, past in terms of like Jon Snow and his relationship to him. So it's a really, like you said, it's an interesting and moving fashion that he does structure this chapter with. But I think it's really, really cool because it helps set us up for Lyanna. And really, I think this is the only 
I think this is the only dialogue we ever get from Lyanna in any of the books so far. Besides, I guess we get it in Bran's final chapter. Or does do they actually talk in Benjamin and Lyanna talk yeah. in Bran's vision? We do see young Lyanna tell Benjamin to, you know, stop, be quiet, stupid. It's only water. Do you want old Nan to, to hear you? Right. So we do get child Lyanna. But yeah, this is this is the only time we actually get dialogue from her in the Robert's Rebellion era uh, is, is this scene. And I, yeah, I love the comparison to a tide. Very poetic. That fits perfectly <laughs> the kind of... All the the water imagery, rain and tears and blood in this chapter. It is it's all sweeping in like a tide. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of this it goes without saying is just the appetizer for the buffet that is the Tower of Joy scene in its next chapter. Yes. This is I think Martin kind of kind of trying out the imagery and mood he wants for for that scene in this earlier chapter. I think. But yeah, so there are a number of effects I think in in terms of structuring it this way, this flashback, and what Martin is going for here, because it's a really dense little scene for only being a couple paragraphs, and I think it's worth teasing out uh, very specifically. The the first effect I think is that Martin is setting up a thesis and proof setup that you start with Liana's declaration about Robert because the scene with Bara and her mother is the proof of it. Mm-hmm. It demonstrates that Liana was right that she says Robert will never keep to one bed. Love is sweet, but it can't change a man's nature. And yep, she's right, because cut to the present, and here's absolute proof that Robert never kept to one bed. Uh, another effect, of course, is that Ned was proven wrong about it, as Atlanta was proven right. So this ties into a topic we've been bringing up in a lot of Ned chapters, his overall disillusionment about Robert, wherein his, his beloved image of his brother in all but blood, the man he fought a rebellion with and for, that image is starting to rot. And again, like you say, he brings up Rhaegar in this context. He wondered if Rhaegar had frequented brothels. Hmm. Somehow he thought not. That's a telling thing for Ned to think. Like, he doesn't say it, but the subtext there is Ned's thinking, uh, to quote Cersei, the wrong man came back from the Trident. Yeah. Like, he's comparing Robert and Rhaegar, and Robert's coming up short, which is, that's that's a really uncomfortable train of thought for someone who believes in Robert's rebellion. But as we saw in Edward Eight, that belief has uh, started to get shattered at least a little bit. It's definitely a place where George indulges us a little bit in that melancholy about Ned and having that buildup of Ned seeing his friend for the first time in his first chapter in A Game of Thrones and then getting more into into Ned and Robert's relationship and how Robert has kind of deteriorated. And here we are again seeing further proof of that deterioration with yet another bastard that Robert had fathered on a, on a common woman. And this... It's really showing him that Lionel was right, but it doesn't bring him any happiness to know that Lionel's right and to know that he was wrong. I mean, I guess being proved wrong is, never brings you a lot of happiness generally, but it, it's hard because for Ned, he has already left Robert's side at this point. In that la- in the last chapter, he had been he had resigned his handship, and he is now in the point he is now in the place where he's seeing further ramifications of Robert's decline, and it's 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 not good for Robert. It's not good for Ned. And I think you're right that Ned is potentially that subtext is him wondering if Rhaegar might have should have won at the Trident and whether that the wrong man came back from the Trident. I think that's that's hard. And I think one of the things that, that always just kind of strikes me is that I do wonder how much of Ned's subtextual thinking here is colored by the present and may not be speaking to the character that Rhaegar may have been, may have returned as. Would he have actually been as awesome or would he actually have been better than Robert? 
I think maybe, but again, we just know so little about Rhaegar Targaryen, despite him being such a prominent backstory character. We're just left with, with more questions than, than answers, really. And that just, uh, it's fueled a lot of the great speculation about Rhaegar Targaryen and the person that he was and a lot of back and forth between folks who really like Rhaegar and folks who really dislike Rhaegar and those who kind of fall in between. Yeah, you make an excellent point that Ned is probably just projecting to a certain extent here. He doesn't know what Rhaegar would have done. He has no way of knowing. He's just kind of feeling really, yeah. really disillusioned and unsettled about Robert. And as you say, it's there's a larger disillusionment going on at work here. It's not just about Robert. It's about, I mean, look at the argument Ned was making to Lyanna. He was saying that, you know, love is transformative. Love changes the person you are. And that is, that's an idea, that's a chivalric trope that has very much trickled down to both high fantasy and modern romance fiction. Hmm. Is that, that love is this kind of chemical element that is like can re- reshape a human being. Not to, not to be too cynical <laughs> about it, but the way it's, the way it's frequently framed in those stories is out of proportion to how we should think about romantic love and how it interacts with the rest of a human being's personality. It, it gives it an inflated image that a lot of characters in this story have fallen for. And it's, it's such a Sansa thing to say that Ned yeah. said that he's gonna, after he's married, he's gonna be a different person. And sure, maybe Ned was just saying it to, keep Lyanna happy, keep her on board. But I don't think so, given the way he talks about Robert and how disillusioned he's become. Yeah. I think he meant it. And that's just... So what we're seeing is the other side of that. We're seeing the the aftermath after that's done. After believing in the transformational power of love has given way to the reality of Robert. And the reality of Robert is this young girl pining after her, and he's never going to visit her or her child. So much for the transformational power of love. Right. I mean, that's when you get, a, you get this line, Ned was soaked through to the bone. And his soul had grown cold. <laughs> like that's that's a little on the flowery side, but it, it's 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 earned given what a crushing blow these last couple of Ned chapters have been to not just his relationship to Robert, but the whole worldview that was underneath his relationship to Robert. You know, this this is just is just devastating to him on multiple levels. And I think Martin does a great job of getting that across with the emotional language of it in this flashback scene. I think it's really good that what George does here is that he isn't questioning whether the rebels were correct in going to war against Aerys Targaryen. I think that is important. But I think he's also showing us the that the outcomes of that completely justified rebellion on the part of Ned and Robert has emotional consequences for, for these characters and for Ned. I, I think if Ned wasn't as emotionally melancholy as he feels right now, he might have kind of sat down and thought about it more logically and be like, well, you know, it was better that we won because Aerys the Second Targaryen would have still been king and the the tyranny of his reign would have continued on. But when you're in some of these moments here, you're not necessarily thinking rationally. You're thinking with your heart. And Ned, as much as he's seen as this kind of cold, emotionless guy, is a very emotional person here. He's emotional about the loss of Lyanna. He's emotional that Lyanna had died as a result of Rhaegar Targaryen, and yet he thinks that Rhaegar may have been the better person and may have, should have kind of won. And, you know, as we're going to find out in some of the Jamie's chapters in Feast, you know, Rhaegar had said that he had planned to make changes if he, if he had came back from the Trident. And perhaps those changes would have been for the betterment of, of the realm, probably for the betterment of the realm. What was Robert's actual policies as king? As far as we know, he didn't really have really any reforms or changes that he implemented in Westeros. It seems that Rhaegar did have a vision of some sort, but we don't exactly know what that vision is or was. And it's hard for Ned because 
as correct as they were in fighting Robert's Rebellion, he still has to deal with the consequences of a king that's kind of let him down and let the country down and let his sister down back before even Robert's Rebellion kicked off. Yeah, you make a great point that, of course, Lyanna died giving birth to Rhaegar's child, and Ned knows that. So the fact that he's thinking Rhaegar should have come back, you know, as, as the king after the Battle of the Trident says something serious. I mean, yeah. I don't think Ned, I don't think Ned hates Rhaegar. And I don't think, I think there's a variety of reasons that Ned doesn't hate Rhaegar, but it's still a serious statement on his part that he's wondering if Rhaegar wasn't, wasn't the better choice after all. <laughs> and yeah, as, as you say, this is a product of just being deep inside Ned's head. As I said earlier, I think this chapter more than any other Ned chapter so far, shows the author trying to illustrate Ned's thought process rather than merely gesture at it, rather than merely have structuring absences around what he doesn't let himself think about, hmm. as we've been talking about in previous chapters. This is we're in there yeah. with his memories and his intersecting memories. And I think that this structure of having the memory of Liana kind of inserted before his before he's puzzling over what just happened is is really indicative of what happened to Ned Stark's brain. Hmm. as it was reshaped by the losses in Robert's Rebellion and the secret he's been forced to keep ever since. This had serious psychological impact on him, not yeah. just a secret he's keeping, but it affects his mental processes moment to moment every day that Liana is coming up here like a ghost to talk to him, basically, <laughs> in the middle of him puzzling over a scene that just happened. It's it's a reflective, reflecting how strong his ghosts are. And I think you can see R plus L imagery over this entire flashback. Not not just that Liana is there, but that we're this passage is moving from the seed of Rhaegar and Liana, at least on Liana's side, her dissatisfaction with the betrothal to Robert, which as many people have speculated was probably part of her decision to go with uh, Rhaegar. <laughs> and we're we're moving from that impetus point to its fruit. A young girl in bed with her babe, smiling a smile that cuts Ned's heart out. That little detail when Barra's mom smiles a smile so tremulous and sweet, as Martin describes it, that cuts Ned's heart out. She's pining for her babe's royal father who will never return to them. This is absolutely analogous to Liana and her bed of blood. Obviously, Barra's mom isn't dying, but otherwise the imagery is really analogous. So it's it's just drawing Ned back, and he he can't get out of it. He can't get away from it. And as I've said before, I think for me, the plot mechanics of Ned's arc are solid, but they're not really the draw. The draw is stuff like this, this yeah. kind of intense, sorrowful, mournful, melancholy stuff. It's just as a, as a, as a sad child growing up, <laughs> loving nothing but Cure posters and Edward Gorey postcards. Uh, this sort of stuff really appeals to me. What can I say? No, I can see what I can see its appeal for sure. Here's something that I wonder, this might make you more sad. Do you think so? We 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 <laughs> yes. as we're going to talk about in the next Ned chapter, we get "Promise Me, Ned," and we get Lyanna dying in her bed of blood. What we don't see is the conversation before that moment. Do you think that Lyanna asked after Rhaegar and whether he was still alive right before Ned had to? Because Ned is an honest guy. Before Ned said, "Look, I'm I'm sorry, he, Rhaegar is dead. He he died on the Trident." And then that's what drives Lyanna to do the promise mean part about about uh, Jon Snow, whether that was what kind of influenced that that conversation piece that becomes so pivotal in our, in our understanding of both Ned as well as more of our understanding about Lyanna. Yeah, that's a good question. I have to assume they established it because the whole reason Lyanna asks Ned to keep Jon safe is because Robert's in charge. Yeah. And Robert will kill him. That's got That's the impetus there. So... Maybe Liana already knows at that point. Maybe word got to her through Wyla somehow. Or maybe Liana just assumes because the very fact that Ned has found her and is walking in the door <laughs> kind of means that the war is over. And if the yeah. war is over and Ned's alive, that probably means that Rhaegar's dead. So maybe she just assumes. It's, you know, that classic 
romantic fantasy thing where as soon as someone walks in the door, you just knew, you yeah. knew in your heart, you know, so it, it might be a moment like that. But yeah, I, I'm, I am looking forward. We obviously saw the conversation in the show from a couple of different angles. I am very much looking forward to if and when we get to see it in the books, because yeah, every, every detail of that is going to be picked over. Because as you say, it's a vital part of the scene that we have not seen even from a distance yet. No, we haven't seen that yet. But to transition from our melancholy into the more of my stuff, the action, we, uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Cause, of course. Cause I grew up a, ch- a child of a, of a military parent and, uh, of course, grew up, grew, grew up drawing pictures of American soldiers parachuting into defeat Nazi Germans in the, uh, in World War II. That was what I did when I was four and five years old, which is totally normal and, and healthy, right? That's the podcast, folks, right there. <laughs> those are our, those are our childhoods and how it's, it's like, it's like in Mega Mind, which makes me Mega Mind. <laughs> But yeah, so there is a sudden transition, not even a transition really, all of a sudden just the, the streets fill with soldiers and uh, and Jamie is there. And it's really interesting, I think, coming back to this as a rereader, there's a whole other layer here once you know how seriously affected Jamie was by Ned's judgment regarding Eris's body in the throne room that fateful day at King's Landing. Mm. Jamie brings this up multiple times, that Ned Stark's cold gray eyes of judgment really freaked him out and fucked him up and yeah. kind of was convinced him that no one would believe him and that the world was going to just judge him forever. You know, Jamie has that line, by what right does the wolf judge the lion? By what right? Yeah. And he um he compares Roose Bolton's eyes to Ned's eyes, <laughs> which is a really, really telling statement because Roose's eyes are what everyone goes to when they say, try to describe what makes him so creepy. Yeah. And then he's com- he's comparing him to dad, our dad, Ned Stark. <laughs> so cl- clearly this was a big moment for Jamie. So part of me wonders whether... Jamie is seeing this not just as getting revenge for Tyrion, but also trying to turn the tables on Ned specifically because of that day, trying to like make him feel powerless the way Ned felt, make Jamie feel powerless. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's, I think you make a great point. I think you're, that connection is something that we're going to talk about here momentarily as well in our likes and dislikes. But yeah, I think that's a definite part of what Jamie is up to here and what's going on in his head. But I also think that the fact that his beloved brother was taken prisoner by the Starks is influencing him. Now, you had talked about, and I think this is really great, I think you had talked about Ned Stark thinking emotionally about things, not necessarily thinking as rationally as he could have. Here, I think Jamie Lannister is in a similar place where he is thinking emotionally. He's not thinking with his head about, how can I orchestrate this so that House Lannister benefits? I think he's thinking entirely emotionally about Tyrion. I think it's it's said at some point that Jamie has a queer affection for Tyrion, and this influences the way that he interacts with his brother and interacts with people who threaten his brother. And the fact that that Tyrion has been taken captive by the Starks is really kind of driving Jamie's action here. But I think also that judgment factor that you brought up is definitely doing that part here too. So you have the judgment that Ned Stark gives to Jamie at the end of Robert's Rebellion in the King's Landing courtroom. But then you also have the emotional aspect of Tyrion is taken prisoner by this guy. And I have, and I love my brother, and this is the guy that is taking him captive and is endangering his life, and I'm just going to take it out on him. It's not some sort of Machiavellian, well, if I'm going to like incite some sort of fight in the streets that I'll be able to blame the Starks, and then I'll head back to Tywin Lannister and we'll have a, a cast a spell in order to declare war. I don't think it's that at all whatsoever. I think Jamie's Jamie's not really thinking here. He's emoting more than anything else. Agreed. Jamie's not thinking several steps ahead at this point in his life that really only uh, changes when you get towards the end of a storm of swords yep. and into feast for crows. Uh, it's, it's ironic if he's doing all this, of course, in defense of his half brother, who was in fact, Eris's bastard son, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see about that as we get into the books to come. Sure. Uh, but yeah, Jamie is, it's interesting. Jamie is 
This is not framed as a scene between two noble houses in dispute who have already done kind of screwed up things to each other. Like, this is not displayed as an even-handed scene at all. Hmm. It's not just that we're in Ned's head. Jamie is framed as like a snarling beast in this chapter. Hmm. It's really such vivid, violent imagery. He's got the blood bay stallion. Yeah. He's got the defiant, roaring line on his breastplate. He's coming out of the rain like a nightmare. There's a specific line that he's tapping at Ned's chest with, quote, the gilded sword that had sipped the blood of the last of the Dragon Kings. This chapter could be framed easily as Jamie's like righteous anger about the little brother he cares about and no one else does. Yeah. But that's not how Martin is choosing to frame it, interestingly. Jamie is kind of presented as a monster here, especially there's the the white of the smile as he orders Ned's men killed, his like his teeth flashing through the rain at Ned as he gives the order. Honestly, this is – you may be aware, good people, that I'm not the hugest fan of Jamie <laughs> Lannister. Um, and I kind of appreciate his story, well-constructed as it is, kind of behind glass emotionally. And this is honestly what I've never been able to get past with him, even more so than the attempt on Brant's life. At least that had the logic of protecting his kids. I don't entirely agree with Martin about that exculpating Jamie, but I, at least I understand that there's a logic there. Here, there's really just nothing. This is just murder. Yeah. I mean, this, there's no calculus, as you said. There's no innocence being protected. There's not even a purely selfish benefit. This won't free Tyrion. This, it's just cruelty with no impetus beyond itself. It's one of the, for me, it's one of the purest examples of the basic immorality and superficiality of the Game of Thrones. Yep. These men exist to Jamie merely as pawns to be sacrificed in just an expression of his own futile, impotent anger. Yeah. He centers that feeling above their lives, and then he just rides away. And this is in contrast to Ned, who just gives this heartbreaking scream of anguish, as you said, when when Jamie gives his order and he begs Jory to flee. So, again, I, I love what Martin does with Jamie. It's written with a lot of passion and feeling, incredible imagery, really well structured. His relationship with J- Brienne is probably easily the best romantic relationship hmm. in the series, and it's absolutely a romantic relationship. Do not add me about this. <laughs> but um, if I had to pick one reason why I've had difficulty getting on board uh, with Jamie's character in the later books, it's probably this, just because I can't contextualize it yeah. or rationalize it in a way I can at least try to with the attempt on Bran's life. It's just... It's just relentlessly horrible in a way that first time through, we haven't actually seen much yet. We haven't, we haven't really seen the true blood and guts that Martin has waiting for us at this point, your first time through the series. So I just, my first time through the books, this moment kind of seared into my brain. And I have to admit, it has somewhat prevented me from getting attached to Jamie Lannister as much as say Jeff has. So I'll let Jeff cry about this now. <laughs> no. But really that's, again, that's, that's more kind of my reaction to it than it is a writing mistake on Martin's part, just to be clear. No, I think you're right. I mean, this is arguably Jamie's worst act, one of worst, worst, worst acts. I mean, we have him pushing Brown out of the window, which is probably his, well, I, I could, I don't know what you would say is his worst act, but both of these acts are equally heinous. And it is hard to contextualize them because we don't have in Jamie's storm feast or dance chapters any flashback to this moment where Jamie thinks, I remember that time where I was in the streets of King's Landing and I, I was just acting so irrationally and emotionally because Tyrion had been taken away from me. And that's, that does have some impact on how we're supposed to look at Jamie at this juncture. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much spoiling what I'm going to say for my dislike for this chapter, but this, this part of this chapter and of course, our previous interactions with Jamie Lannister more remind me of the Jamie from the pitch letters as opposed to the Jamie that we see when he becomes a point of view character. And I think that, and you say it's not to write to the detriment of Martin's writing. I think it is, although there's a possibility that Martin could redeem himself in the Winds of Winter to have Jamie think about 
some sort of memory of Tyrion. Perhaps he hears about Tyrion and Marine or Volantis or something like that. And he thinks back to the time when he was fighting on, or he believes that he was fighting on behalf of Tyrion's life. And he's kind of ruining the, ruining that, that moment and ruining the fact that he'd shed innocent blood or maybe not innocent blood in his perspective, but blood on behalf of the brother who now wants to end his life. I think that's something that Martin could explore in The Winds of Winter, but I think it's something that so far, really hasn't been answered. I mean, we one of the, the thing about Jamie is that in his perspective, we do get the contextualization for him killing Eris the Second Targaryen, something that people from that Ned Stark condemns him for in Edder 2 from a Game of Thrones. We don't have that yet for this. We do have a little bit of it for him pushing Bran out of the window. And we have Martin also saying stuff like, well, if your kids were in danger, would you kill someone in order to save your own kid's life? You know, you have some contextualization from Martin from outside the text, but you also have something in the text as well. But so far, we don't have anything about this event. And I think that really is kind of a writing mistake on George's part until he corrects it, hopefully in the winds of winter or maybe even a dream of spring for that matter. I think you bring up a great scenario there where it could be connected to his changing perspective on Tyrion. Like he's thinking to himself, I did so much for you. I butchered those poor men in the streets for you. And now you're turning on me like it's that's would be analogous to how he says to Cersei that uh, I'm not ashamed of loving you, just the things I've done to hide it yeah. in reference to Bran. So that's a very good point. I think that's a way Martin could address it. But yeah, it's just kind of dangling as it stands. And I c- completely agree that Jamie more, maybe more than any other character, shows the signs of the pitch letter still hanging around in Martin's brain yeah. when you look at this first book. Uh, for me, he feels his development later feels the most like Martin came up with it while writing Clash and Storm, yep, rather absolutely. than ha- having it having it inform a Game of Thrones, 100%. which doesn't detract from it. That that if anything, that adds to it because then it's a remarkable turn to take midstream. Yeah, in terms of how well he's pulled it off. So more kudos to him for that. But it does for me uh, make this stuff a little weaker. But to get <laughs> to something I like. What really does connect the two halves of this chapter together, as I alluded earlier, is that Ned Stark is once again, quote, alone with his dead. <laughs> Little finger in the city watch found him there in the street, cradling Jory Cassell's body in his arms. That is just heartbreaking, <laughs> as you were saying. It's, 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 it happened again. Here he is again, as he was remembering with Lyanna, left alone with someone he cares about dead, and there's nothing he could do to stop it. And it's not going to be the last time either. It's going to happen at Robber's bedside too. Yep. It's going to happen again as his men get cut down around him in the throne room and of course eventually it's going to happen to him right. and uh, and he's going to go to his grave trying to save Sansa from that same fate this is just Ned's destiny it must seem to him at this point that he's always just going to be losing people and watching the life flee from their eyes as he cradles them in their in his arms and and like I said he's just he just screams when Jamie orders his men killed not like roaring with defiance <laughs> not like trying to negotiate it's just like ripped from his lungs this sorrow that this can't happen again and it does so that is you know as i said that's really what keeps me coming back to ned chapters is is that 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 fall from grace that is not just in his backstory but just keeps happening to him it's so it's so gut-wrenching for ned to be experiencing this and i have to imagine for someone like ned who is all about taking personal responsibility about meeting out justice as the Lord of Winterfell and as the Lord Paramount of the North, to be always, until the very end, to be always be saved because of his status as Lord Stark and to watch those who are serving him killed around him, whether it's Jory or whether at the end of a Game of Thrones, whether it's all the rest of his men in a Game of Thrones, in the, in the Red Keep, in the Red Keep throne room. Like that has to just kind of crush him. And 
the fact that Martin crushes him, you know, you want to kind of like wag your finger at Martin and be like, stop doing that. Stop hurting Ned the way that you're doing. And at the same time, leave you, him alone. Right. Yep. Leave him alone. But at the same time, you want to be like, good job, George, in really kind of driving home how emotional it feels to be in the situation, how we as readers get to experience the emotions of the series through a super emotional dude and a super emotional dude that is all about personal responsibility and is all about meeting his enemies head on. And, you know, as he says to Varas at the end of a game of Thrones, he would, he plans to die as a soldier and he's known that he's going to die for a long time. Now he's not afraid of his death, but at the same time, I think he fears for those who, who are in his service, those who are in his family too, in the case of Sansa at the end of A Game of Thrones, that he's going to have to watch them die. And that's just gut-wrenching, man. It's so gut-wrenching. You make an excellent point that it's linked to how much he cares about personal responsibility and uh, taking care of the people in his service. To have that, to have him not only lose people, but to be helpless while they die. Yeah. To have the, the power of being Ned Stark, Lord of Winterfell, turned against him because he's taken as a hostage while they're killed. Because mm-hmm. they don't, they don't have the power to merit that. That's just, that's just salt in his wounds, and I think you can really feel that emotional tide as you put earlier, ramping up through Ned's chapters as we get towards uh, the middle and the second half of Game of Thrones. Absolutely. Um, but as, but as you say, you know, he, part of it is just kind of watching him wrestle with it, and you can notice the shift happen when he realizes his men are in danger. When it's just him in danger, as you say, he, he doesn't seem terrified. He's very cool and in control which shifts nicely into my like for this mm-hmm. chapter, um, which is I, I really just love purely in just kind of a movie one-liner kind of way, Ned's reaction to Jamie confronting him. Littlefinger is blustering. What are you doing? This is the hand of the king. And Ned just says, he knows what he's doing, Ned said calmly. Mm. Mm. It's just just a perfect moment of Ned being cold as ice, such a taciturn, badass response. It's very Western. You can... You can practically see the tumbleweeds blowing across the street and Ned chomping on his hand-rolled cigar. It's just good stuff. <laughs> I love it. You got the Ennio Morricone soundtrack playing behind. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. That's... You know, people pe- people looking out the like the windows of the of the businesses and then sh- closing up the shutters because <laughs> there's a because there's a duel happening. I love it. No, it's great. I think that you can see the effect of westerns having on Martin here in writing this, and you can feel you know some of those spaghetti westerns as well here too, placing. Uh, having having an impact on George's writing here, something we talked about in our uh, patron episode about some of the the media that influences George in writing Song of Ice and Fire. But yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic point. But there is something though off about this scene, according to you. <laughs> yeah, so my dislike is kind of the flip side of that. Uh, by contrast, Jamie's one-liners don't work as well. And this is something uh, the folks at Close the Door podcast, which if you haven't checked out, you should. Uh, They do a lot of great content, especially (laughs) Lannister-related. Jamie, as a POV, one of the interesting things about him is you get – when you get access to the mind behind his frequently caustic, mean comments – it's uh, he's frequently contradicting himself. He's revealing himself. He's being self-aware about what he's putting on, and that makes his one-liners more than just snarky Littlefinger-esque remarks. Yeah. The problem is that Jamie's not a POV here. So, in this context, a line like "I'll butcher you like Eris if I must" is is just a little mustache twirling. <laughs> it, 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 it undercuts the drama from the hopeless situation. How well it's described. What makes Jamie terrifying here is that. He's just willing to kill these people for really no reason yeah. or and no – I mean he's got the motivation of Tyrion being taken prisoner, but this isn't doing anything about it. As I said earlier, he's just expressing his anger through murder. That's what makes Jamie frightening here. He doesn't have – threatening makes him less scary in, in this in this kind of cartoonish way. So 
again, there's nothing wrong with caustic one-liners, and I think they work really well when Jamie becomes a POV. But like contrast him with Sandor. He never becomes a POV, but we've already been given kind of a vulnerable and revealing moment with him via Sansa at the tourney. So going forward, we're never going to take the, the Hound's one-liners at face value. Like we're always yeah. going to know, ah, but he's really feeling something else underneath that. We don't have that with Jamie at this point, so I think his lines like I'll butcher you like Eris if I must are less effective. On That's mostly a first-read criticism, but... As I was saying, Jamie just gets developed later on. Here, he's he's kind of one note. Yeah, you you can imagine like a place where Martin could have in, inserted a line from Jamie after Ned tells tells him that he was that he ordered Catelyn to take Tyrion Lannister at his command. Jamie saying, "Why? Why are you taking my brother captive? It doesn't make any sense. Explain yourself, Ned." Something like that that would be like, okay, now we're getting a little bit more of what's going on here. And you also kind of ramp up the emotions and the tension a little bit in the chapter. But we never get that. We get Jamie then drawing his sword out. And that's like – and then we get to him like poking Ned with the sword after that and saying, I'll butcher you like Ares if I must. But I prefer that you die with the sword in hand unlike Ares. And, you know, it, it does really kind of undercut the tension and it does kind of feel a little bit – off about it. And that kind of like leads me to my dislike for the chapter is that, you know, Jamie's, like I said before, we don't get him remembering this encounter. We don't get his side of the story. We just get Ned and we get Ned's perspective. And Ned's perspective is plenty emotional and plenty great, but it would have been good to have Jamie reflect back to this moment because we kind of deserve it more than anything else. We kind of, we could, we, as readers, we deserve to have something to understand Jamie, to understand why he's acting the way that he's acting instead of us trying to theorize as to why Jamie is the way he is. You know, this is, like I said, is arguably one of Jamie's worst acts. And I'd love to someday get a retrospective of Jamie's point of view of it and the emotions he experienced before finding out about Tyrion being taken prisoner during the event itself where he's challenging Ned and Ned just kind of being like, I had Tyrion taken prisoner. Fuck off, you know? And then after <laughs> the fact too, where he's like, does he have like guilt? Does he think, does it, do his men come to him afterwards and tell him, Hey, uh, Jamie, so we uh, killed all of Ned's men, kind of like you said, but uh, Ned Stark broke his leg, so that's not good. Uh, we're not sure if he's going to survive or not, so you need to get the fuck out of Dodge. You know, I think that those things would have kind of helped us to understand Jamie's character a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think those lines are, they're okay as, as they stand right now, but we need more context in order for us to really understand this scene more and we need more context too to emotionally connect with Jamie Lannister's perspective because if anything a song of ice and fire what a song of ice and fire does really well is that it allows us to see the same event from multiple perspectives and seeing this event from multiple perspectives would be good at some juncture in the future agreed completely with every point you made there and it's again it's fine if this is all you're ever going to do with Jamie if this is who Jamie Lannister's character is and you're going to keep using him in exciting action scenes as the bad guy, right. then this is fine. I, I think I think the liners lines are still cheesy, but the real problem is <laughs> this 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 is really jarring coming back to it, having read Jamie's chapters in Storm and Feast. And while I'm not the hugest fan of the dude, he doesn't seem like this guy. Like this right. guy is sadistic. Jamie's not sadistic. When he he's done some terrible things, but there's always a motivation behind them, even if I disagree with it. This is more like something that Joffrey would do. And that it, it doesn't, right. it, it's, it's a little, it's a little contradictory. But as you say, it's the easiest thing to retcon. All Martin would have to do is have Jamie think about it for a sentence. Yes. To establish some kind of sorrow or regret or that he thought about it later. Again, because that happened with Bran. So I'm, I think if Martin wants to deal with that, he can. But, uh, you know, 
Not exactly a fatal flaw no. uh, if he doesn't. No, it's not. What did you uh, like about the chapter, sir? So lots of things I liked about this chapter. But the thing I'm going to focus on is George's ability to make us feel pathos. When George wants us to feel sad, by God, he's going to do it, man. That Lyanna flashback about talking about how love is not all it's chopped up to be. Barra's mother's smile. Ned cradling Joy's body in his arms. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment and be sad. Okay, moments over, you fucking saps. But let's get back. But let's get back to giving George his writing props, especially in the Jory example. He clearly sets the stage for us to be sad about Jory, right? He's crafting this minor character to be loyal, good, trustworthy, and above all, in kind of a literary sense, likable. He jokes back in Bran's first chapter about the boys finding the direwolf with Ned. He helps Arya save Nymeria's life and serves as the plucky underdog during the Hand's Tourney, defeating several tourney knights and several renowned men who are her wielding arms, having him ripped from both Ned and the readers, and then having Ned cradle his body after he's dead, just like I said before, guts us. Good work, George. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, remember when Littlefinger asked Ned if he had some sort of paragon of virtue he would trust to send to Sir Hugh, and Ned said that he did, yeah. and Littlefinger just like rolled his eyes and sneered, and we later learned that it was Jory that Ned was talking about, because Ned sends Jory to, to talk to Sir Hugh. So that's, Jory is almost a symbol of this debate between Ned and Littlefinger over whether you have to succumb to crude Machiavellianism or whether you can in fact govern by trying to do the right thing. So the fact that Jory has died here as a result of Ned and Ned's investigations and maybe as a result of Littlefinger's meddling, but we'll get into that <laughs> later in the episode, is again, symptomatic of the overall disillusionment and fall from grace that Ned is kind of constantly going through and that a lot of characters are going through in this first book. I wouldn't call Jory the first significant death in the series, not to be mean to him. I would probably <laughs> reserve that for Viserys Targaryen yeah, uh, a dozen or so chapters from now. I think Viserys is such a perfect first major death for the series in a lot of ways, so I kind of got to give that up to him just yeah. in the, uh, thematically in a lot of ways. But... Uh, Jory's loss here is definitely meant to resonate with us, meant to feel, as it does to Bran, unfair in some way. Not not okay, not reconcilable. And right. it emotionally, yeah, it fits with the Liana flashback and with the little details like like Ned feeling the baby's hair, a little little bearer with her black hair, fine like Roberts. It's just such yeah. a fragile, delicate kind of moment. And then to go from that to having your heart dashed out on the streets, it's not subtle. <laughs> but like you say, emotionally, when Martin wants to f make you feel sad, he really hits you. I know not everyone likes Feast and Dance, but Martin still can do that. Even if you don't like anything else about those books, he can yeah. still have Brienne say to Nimble Dick's corpse, I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't yeah. know how to do that anymore. Or John Connington look off his battlements to say, I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. Mm. Like, even if you don't like the plots of, of those particular storylines, Martin does those little searing moments better than almost anybody. I think better than anybody, really, if I'm being honest. I mean, I, I've never read a writer that's done <laughs> <laughs> sadness as uh, well as George let's does. Let's not hedge our bets. Uh -huh. Let's just say it. He's the best in the business. The best there is. But I think that about takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork section of the podcast. So let's talk a little bit about Shataya's brothel. Emmett, take us away. Sure. So Shataya's establishment is not here just to uh, push Ned's investigation further. It comes up repeatedly in Tyrion's story when he arrives in King's Landing to take over from Ned as Hand of the King. And one of the real things I'm looking forward to most when we get to A Clash of Kings is pointing out all the little contrasts between Ned as Hand and Tyrion as Hand because there are just so many of them. Yeah. Some of them small, some of them big, some of them in terms of character, some of them in terms of structure could talk about them forever and will. <laughs> but one example is how for Ned, this visit to Shatayas is this very kind of mournful, tragic, proper, respectful thing. And for Tyrion, it's just his way of like 
this is a sleazy fashion of keeping Shay hidden. Hmm. And it results in uh, one of Shatai's daughters getting horribly attacked by by Tywin and his men. Yeah. So it's it's a completely different emotionally, but it will keep coming up significantly because this is where Tyrion sets up the tunnel to get into Shay's manse. Hmm. Um, and this is where uh, another king's hand, strongly hinted that to be Tywin, <laughs> has, has tunneled into before. So uh, there are multiple hands of the king and the kind of the secrets they're keeping are connected to this establishment. So it, it's reminded me of the end of the crossroads in that it's a, just a very thematically significant location that'll, that multiple characters move through and multiple stories get swept up in. Yeah, it is that. And I do love how it serves as that place for Tyrion to get in and out of and in order to uh, to to talk with and meet up with Shay. And something that George has talked about is that we will see Shataya and Aliaya again, which is something that I'm looking forward to in The Winds of Winter. I think that is interesting that they are going to be featured again. I do kind of wonder the context that they're going to show up. I think it's going to be really uh, fascinating if potentially they are involved somehow in the Aegon plotline. And there's perhaps some hints that Varys is in on with Shatea at some level, we're not entirely sure of their full relationship, but I can see that having some payoffs come the winds of winter. So yeah, I think it's a great location. Like the end of the crossroads, it serves as a great spot for many of these characters to interact, to have conflict with each other and to, you know, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> True. Also that well put, sir. So Ned talks about his promises, some in this chapter mm. and how different they are from Robert's uh, lifestyle. And indeed, he makes a promise in this chapter that he will keep in later chapters. A nice little bit of, of groundwork when he, he says to Barra's mother, I will tell him, child, the him being Robert. And I promise you, Barra will not go wanting. And indeed, Ned will, uh, will bring this up to Robert in this next chapter and will make that, that, uh, that, again, another heartbreaking moment when he tells Robert on his deathbed, I will take care of you, protect your children as if they were my own. <laughs> of course, Robert doesn't know which children he's talking about, but, uh, this is, Again, I like that Ned, the, this detail is not dropped. I mean, obviously it doesn't develop because Ned dies shortly thereafterwards. But Martin is showing us in real time that Ned keeps his promises. Not just the one he made back in the day, but ones he makes within the story. Within his his, his present day, he does keep. So that's nice and sweet. He's a good guy, Ned Stark. I don't know if we've made that clear. Yeah, he's a good guy. Here's the problem, though. What happens to Barra and her mother in A Clash of Kings? Nothing good. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there, folks. And if, if No, sure. Ned does not keep this promise. Let's allow <laughs> me to make that perfectly clear. And that's uh, that's another level to the groundwork. So, yeah, there's... there's as, as throughout this chapter, there's, there's, there's layers of sadness and then there's layers of horror right underneath. That's, that's a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire right there. Yeah, that's, that scene from uh, when Tyrion is interviewing Janice Lynn in A Clash of Kings. Oh, God. It just, I just, you just, you're so happy in A Dance with Dragons when Jon Snow cuts his head off. Whatever your feelings are about the death penalty, I think that Sean Collins has made this point. Uh, in uh, in the Boiled Leather Audio Hour, and that whatever your feelings about the death penalty, about whether you you believe in it or don't believe it, in, in Sean's case, he doesn't believe in it and, and doesn't support it. You do feel a real sense of satisfaction when Jon Snow cuts Jenna Slint's fucking head off because the death of Bera and her child just just it makes me it makes me angry right now, like just thinking about it. And it's just so horrific the way that it's done. And it's done by a guy named Allardeem, who, again, which is extremely satisfying, Tyrion orders this dude to be tossed over the side of a boat on the way up to, to Eastwatch by the sea. So that's all well and good. But here, the promise that Ned makes is going to go unfulfilled, unfortunately, for, for Ned. Uh, unfortunately for Barra and for Barra and her mother. But that's mostly because the Ned is dead by that point in the story. Also, unfortunately. John O'Slynn's death scene might be the most purely satisfying death scene in the entire story. Martin, when he kills off villainous characters, tends to try to at least 
make you sympathize with him to a certain extent. Yeah. Joffrey is one of the big examples of that. That you know he's just kind of a kid choking and screaming for his mom as he dies. Um, but even Gregor like is is, is screaming and in hideous pain. It gets transformed into a zombie. Right. Uh, Tywin Tywin dies in kind of an embarrassing fashion. But now Janos Lint, that's just you just nod like Stannis yep. when John when John <laughs> takes Janos Lint's head off because he's just that venal. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, speaking of endangered children, as you said, this is our, our first mention in, of Edric Storm comes in this chapter, although not by name. Uh, Littlefinger talks about how, he, I know he's acknowledged that boy at Storm's End, the one he fathered the Night Lord Stannis wed. He could hardly do otherwise. The mother was a Florent, niece to the Lady Selyse, one of her bedmaids. Renly says that Robert carried the girl upstairs during the feast and broke in the wedding bed while Stannis and his bride were still dancing. I love that Renly's gossiping about this. That's nice. Right. Lord Stannis seemed to think that that was a blot on the honor of his wife's house, so when the boy was born, he shipped him off to Renly. So, um, first of all, I just, I would have loved to have been in the room when Martin came up with the idea. Of where, where should Robert conceive Edric Storm? In Stannis' marriage? But yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right for their relationship. Like, this is the most Baratheon scene imaginable. Yeah. And, it's, and it's like, as soon as you read that, it's like, oh, so that's why Stannis, that's part of why Stannis just really can't stand Robert at this point. Okay. That's about right. But yeah, so obviously by the time we get to A Clash of Kings, the author appears to have Edric's purpose at least somewhat in mind. Stannis has that line, uh, I must have the boy, Davos. Must. She's seen that as well. So I don't think Melisandre has told him what for at that point. But at that point, I think you can see that Martin knows where Edric Storm is going. At this point, who knows if he's gotten that far. Edric Storm might just exist in this chapter as a way to, as I said, further emphasize the wedge between Robert and Stannis to establish that these two brothers are not getting along and to give us some of the reasons why. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Again, Martin, as a gardener, likes to utilize seeds that he plants early early on. Sometimes they don't generate into anything, but in this case, he definitely had a seed that he uses to kind of contain the central struggle in, in Stannis' arc in The Clash and, and A Storm of Swords. What's interesting about Edric Storm is something that I had found somewhat recently when I was rereading Davos's first chapter in The Clash of Kings – Stannis wants Edric Storm not to burn him. Yes, Melisandre says that she sees a purpose in him, that she mu- that they must have the boy. But Stannis sees Edric Storm as a way to show the realm that these are what Baratheon kids look like. Edric Storm is Robert's son. Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella are blonde of hair. And this is the actual son of Robert here. Here's these people that are claimed to be Robert's son. Here's actually Robert's son. See the difference? Westeros, are, are you reading me here? <laughs> so it, is this tap tap? Is this thing on? Right. Hello, can anyone hear me? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, who knows how successful Stannis would have been with that? But yeah, this I'd forgotten that. It's a, this is a great example of it's so difficult to parse what Melisandre is telling Stannis when. Yeah. Because we because we don't get a POV from either of them until they're separate and for Melisandre and dance. So it's it's interesting to time out the details. But yeah, Stannis does have a non-sacrifice purpose uh, for Edric Storm in mind. In that same chapter, uh, Clash of Kings Davos too. So it's it's it seems pretty much hundred percent certain then that Melisandre has not told him why she wants Edric Storm, and does not tell him why until after the Blackwater. I mean, to kind of go off on a, on a bit of a tangent, it really does kind of make you kind of scratch your head at Sir Courtney Penrose because he's like, oh, I must, you know, yeah, he's not defending. I think this kind of gets lost in a lot of fan thought. Sir Courtney Penrose, as badass as his lines are, Stannis doesn't have a purpose of burning Edric Storm at this point in the at this point in the story in a Clash of Kings, Davos 2. That comes in a Storm of Swords after basically all hope is lost to Stannis. 
So Sir, Sir Courtney Penrose's defense of Edric Storm and of Storm's end is essentially meaningless, kind of, and, and it does really kind of, it, it, it contextualizes kind of that a bit more than what we're, what some of the recent fan thought about Sir Courtney Penrose as being this badass guy who's defending Edric Storm from the flames. Well, that's not exactly the case in A Clash of Kings. It becomes the case in A Storm of Swords, but that's something that evolves in the story. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that that is a little bit of weirdness that Sir Courtney's intensity in protecting Edric really doesn't make that much sense yeah. as his motive, because he has no reason to suspect the kid is in danger. But yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll touch on that more when we get to A Clash of Kings Devos. We shall. I know that's one of our, our favorite chapters, both of ours. So another a couple of other quick bits of foreshadowing from Ned's perspective in terms of what he will do later in the book. When he says, kill me. He warned the Kingslayer, and Cadlin will most certainly slay Tyrion. This is not the last time that Ned will try to escape a tight corner with an implied threat to Tyrion from Cadlin. He will try again in the Black Cells, kind of hilariously from our perspective, because this is <laughs> long after Tyrion has slipped his bonds. We know that, but he doesn't. And it's just interesting, it struck me in terms of what we were talking about with Eddard Eight and how Ned kind of gave up his hand badge at the worst time. Both Ned and Cadlin are relying on the other to give them cover, and both are failing. Like, Ned gives up his handpin... And he can't persuade Robert. Catelyn trusts Lysa and lets Tyrion go. So, you know, Ned and Catelyn were kind of given the image that they work well as a unit. But once they, they're separate from each other, their decisions kind of inadvertently screw screw the other one over, which yeah. I think is interesting. But yeah, so this is not the uh, not the last time that Ned will try to escape a tight corner that way. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, uh, real strong uh, foreshadowing <laughs> is the, the image here of Ned helpless as his manor butchered by Lannister forces all around him. That is exactly, of course, what will happen at the climax of his story, his downfall in the throne room. There's even that line there, as his men died around him, uh, when Littlefinger's betrayal becomes clear and the gold cloaks turn on him. So yeah, that time when Ned's men are getting butchered, Littlefinger will not run away. No, no, he will be right there at Ned's side with a dagger and a one-liner. did tell you not to trust me. I mean, it's just, it's... We did kind of talk about that line, how it was kind of a little bit weird when we talked about that chapter back in the day. But uh, it, in the end, it does work out really, really well to kind of finish Ned's story, essentially. Again, he has one final oh, yeah. chapter afterwards, but that is the climax of Ned's story. And uh, having him then, uh, Littlefinger confronting him and in the throne room does kind of kind of work well. But that kind of oh, yeah. takes us a bit to kind of a, a, a discussion, right? About Littlefinger in this chapter, right? It's so weird that Jamie Lannister knew exactly where to find Ned Stark, right? It's so strange that all of these Lannister men would file in from both sides of the street at the exact place where they did, and they were able to cut Ned's men off. It's almost like someone might have told Jamie where to find Ned. I, I don't know. I don't know who that person might be. I bet it's, um... Was it Quaith? Quaith, yes. Probably Quaith. She's always saying stuff about things that are going to happen. That's like her whole deal. Yeah, no, it's Makoro. Makoro. Oh, true, true. He's he's a wild card, that (laughs) Makoro. But yeah, no. So what we're obviously alluding at here is the probability that it was, in fact, Littlefinger who told Jamie Lannister exactly when and where he could find Ned Stark. As, As Jeff said... The Lannister men are in suspiciously perfect formation. <laughs> this is not just running into him on the street. This is knowing where he was going to be. Yeah. You have uh, Littlefinger's, I don't know, his dialogue in that scene is very on Littlefinger-esque. Like when he's declaring, what is this? Ned is the hand of the king. Like that's not how <laughs> Littlefinger usually talks. <laughs> right. Sticking up for Ned or declaring about the hand of his office. That seems like he's purposefully being a paper tiger. Yeah. Would you say so? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you also have that line too from Littlefinger. I'll go fetch the city guard. You know, he then slinks away and lets Ned and Jamie have at it in the streets of King's Landing. 
I think here we're it, we're very strongly meant to led to believe that Littlefinger let Jamie know where Ned was, where to find Ned and to ambush them. And you do kind of wonder what Littlefinger's endgame is here, because what if Ned Stark had actually died here? You know, this this chapter leaves with a cliffhanger of, oh, did Ned Stark actually die? Because that was the last thing that Ned knew was the final line of the chapter. You do kind of wonder what Littlefinger's plan was. Was he trying to get Ned killed here? I'm not sure that would have worked necessarily for his purposes because Robert is still alive. I'm not sure that Robert would necessarily take Ned Stark dying lying down as much of a disappointment, as much of a sad disappointment as, as Robert is to Ned Stark. As Ned remembers back in, in Eddard Six, one of the few things that Ned, that Robert knows is that his duty is to defend the realm. Jamie Lannister had killed Ned Stark in the streets of King's Landing. I would be fairly certain that Robert would call the banners and march against Jamie and probably Tywin Lannister at that point. It's some, there, there's just some weirdnesses about Littlefinger's plan here. Did he counsel Jamie not to kill Ned Stark? Was that all bluster on Jamie's part? Again, this is something where a Jamie flashback would really do some favors in kind of setting the scene a little bit for us and kind of showing us Littlefinger's machinations at this junk at this juncture of the story, as everybody has criticized me for saying. So I I don't know. I think this it's it's weird, but I do think it's I think do think it's strongly implied that Littlefinger was the one who set Ned up for what unfolded in the streets of King's Landed. I agree, and I think there's another telling detail in Ned's next chapter when Ned is proclaiming his innocence, telling Robert, talk to Littlefinger, he'll tell you. And Robert says, Yeah, I talked to Littlefinger. He said he didn't see anything after he left, that you were coming back from some brothel. It's like that. It sounds like Littlefinger told the story to be as unsympathetic to Ned as possible. Right. So I, I, I do think Littlefinger is just trying to keep the Stark Lannister conflict going by any means necessary and keeping his, his own hands uh, clean, as he will tell Sansa later, because obviously to all and sundry, this looks like just solely Jamie was responsible, just as it will look to all and sundry like Joffrey <laughs> is solely responsible for the execution of Ned Stark. Right. But yeah, I think it is also a little fingerish move in that it's actually kind of rash and unnecessary and yeah. puts maybe more at risk than he ever could have hoped to gain. Because yeah, if Ned dies at this point, that, as with Varys, that just makes the war too lopsided. It, it makes the, the two sides too uneven because the Lannisters will have a really strongly effectively isolated themselves, including from the crown. So I think that was, uh, I imagine that's got to be a risk Littlefinger took, or maybe he just enjoyed putting Ned in danger or like playing with him in this way. Yeah. Littlefinger, Littlefinger does enjoy the game a little too much for his own good, which is a theme we're going to be following throughout the series. There's some Littlefinger moves where you can see the game clearly for him, like executing Ned. Uh, there are other moves like the Purple Wedding where, like, or killing Joffrey specifically. I know making off a of Sansa was his overall go there, but killing Joffrey where it's just like, oh, you just kind of did that just because. <laughs> Uh, so I think this is one of those moves with Littlefinger. I, I, I agree that the, the hints are here that he was responsible for it, but also that his motivation is still kind of foggy. And yeah, once again, uh, a Jamie flashback could help us quite a bit. Get on it, George. Yeah, get on. You know, the winds of winter coming next week. Maybe we'll finally get to read Jamie Lannister's perspective on, on that, that event. Can't wait for the 10 Jamie Lannister chapters devoted to exactly this subject <laughs> and nothing else. No, but I think it's, it's going to be something that'll be interesting to, uh, to unfold. And maybe it's even something if it doesn't end up being explored in future volumes that, that George will be willing to answer since it's something that's happened so far in the past that there's not really much of a plot ramification for future stories going forward. Now, one of the things about this though, and I think you kind of triggered something in my mind. I do wonder whether this is potentially showing us that Littlefinger, as great as he is at the Game of Thrones or 
and not as great as fucking awful and as fucking awful of a human being as he is in playing the Game of Thrones, that he's not necessarily as farsighted as he makes himself out to be. Now, yes, he does say things about like, oh, I killed Joffrey because make moves that your enemies won't see that they'll have to. Yeah. You're like, come on. That, that, that's such a bullshit line from someone who half read Sun Tzu once. Right. Like, I don't I don't actually buy. I, I hope he means more than that because that's that's such a shallow thing to say. Be unexpected just because they'll never guess that. It's like that's what are you stupid? What are you just stoned and watching the Dark Knight? Why, why are you why are you talking that way? But I, um, I mean, I think it's possible too that we're showing Littlefinger as not necessarily farsighted, as being kind of yeah. That's a good point. You know, maybe and maybe this is an example too. We talked about how Ned and Jamie are emoting through this chapter. Maybe Littlefinger's emoting too. Maybe he's heard True. about Catelyn Stark taking Tyrion Lannister prisoner, and he realizes that. Catelyn Stark is in danger, and you know if Catelyn Stark's in danger and Ned Stark is dead, who is she going to turn to but her best childhood friend, me? So now I'm going to get Ned Stark killed so I can gain Catelyn Stark back, or or something like that. Again, something that might be worth exploring someday down the road. George, are you listening? Tap tap. Anyway, yeah, I think I think that's very true. Then you can explain a lot of what Littlefinger does purely as he likes jerking the High Lords around. It's just given given his backstory with the Tullys and the Starks. That's just something he viscerally enjoys doing, maybe even when he doesn't stand to gain from it. He just likes being able to do it. Littlefinger does have that weakness of wanting everyone to know that he's the smartest man in the room. Yeah. Which is certainly not something that we could relate to at all. No, but not at all. <laughs> I, th- I think that pretty much wraps us up yeah. for uh, A Game of Thrones, Eddard 9. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for listening to us. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcasts, we are there. You can uh, check out our Patreon, if you have not, at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on social media at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or shoot us a line on our email, which is notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Uh, personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So, where he... Well, I was going to say where he has just started a new essay series. In oh. fact, if you if you would like to plug that briefly, sure. So I started a new essay series called "The Broken Country," something that I've been kind of working on for about twelve months, almost a year, really, at this point. And I just published the first part of the uh, essay series. I'll be doing a monthly series after that, talking all about northern politics and warfare in the wake of the Red Wedding. Something that you know people aren't really that interested in. I know, but uh, you know, I think um, I think. It's something that you guys uh, hopefully will enjoy. Part one is about uh, a subtle betrayal that I think that Tywin Lannister is doing against the Boltons and kind of working through, like, what is Tywin Lannister's plan with the North and how Bruce Bolton kind of has figured out what Tywin Lannister is up to and is securing himself for the future. But that's going to be part two. It's a terrific essay on a fun and convoluted topic. I'm looking forward to much more on it. So check that out if you have not already. And of course, join us next time as we cross the narrow sea to Essos for the first time in a while and are introduced to the city of Vaistothrak in Daenerys 4. It's going to be so much fun, man. I can't wait to do that with you. Likewise. So we will see you guys next week, and thanks for listening. Take care, everybody.